Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. On the detail today, the story behind the discovery that a sex offender went to meetings with survivors of sexual abuse. I do feel re-victimised. My skin is crawling with the idea that that person was at our meetings, was staying in the hotel with us, was around children in that hotel. Newsroom journalist Laura Walters broke the news last week that the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Abuse and Care had known about the convicted child sex offender for several weeks and had let him attend meetings with survivors. They've been waiting for this for so long. Their safety and, and their trust has been abused. Now it has emerged that the man stayed at the Brentwood Hotel in Kilburnie, which is right by two schools. This man told them that one of his specific needs was knowing his accommodation two or three days out from travel so that he could notify police. That's not a normal requirement for someone who has a historic conviction. The government formally announced the $80 million inquiry into abuse in state care and faith-based institutions last November. The Royal Commission of Inquiry into Abuse in State Care might take years, but its chair says it will do everything in its power to uncover New Zealand's dark history. It's the biggest Royal Commission in New Zealand history and thousands of people are set to tell their stories of abuse. But in less than a year, the chair, Sir Annan Sachinand, had resigned and the commission has been criticised for appointing a gang member into a key role, using survivors for trial interviews, and now the scandal about the sex offender. Walters first heard about it three weeks ago. Some of the survivors who were on the survivors' advisory group had heard or knew or understood that one of the partners of one of the people on the group was a child sex offender. And that's all the information I had at the time. So, of course, the first thing you have to verify is, is that information correct, right? Because it's a massive claim. So it was it was then a, a matter of, of trying to tease that information out a little bit more to then be able to get the man's name from there. I went to the, the parole board and got the uh, most recent decision, and that was to do with an extended supervision order, which actually expired last year, and that had in it all of those things. Things around, you know, can't can't go on school grounds and um, other things like having to attend um, courses regarding um, sexual offending. And then from there, I thought, okay, well, I need to know for sure what this man did and the severity of it. So then went through quite a slow process of um, dealing with the district court that his case was heard in that sentenced him and that put in place the extended supervision order. I mean, these stories aren't nice to do, right? No. It's, it's massive for people's lives. I was thinking about that man the whole way through who has done his time, right, and has been seen to be fit out in the community and, and not as a, as a risk to the community. So he has every right to go about his life and live that. And I really thought about his partner, so I wanted to make sure that we had every bit of information along the way. And, so, and just checking, Laura, his extended supervision order has expired. Yes, it expired in May last year, so May 2018, which was um, 10 years after he was released from prison. So, And does he, that mean that he yeah. just lives a, a normal life now? 
Yeah, essentially. I mean, there there are certain things. Like my understanding, and police can't confirm this because of privacy. My understanding that is that he is on the child sex offender register, which means there are certain things he has to do, like disclose to police when he is travelling, when he's going overseas, when he's um, moving address, things like that, just just so that they know where he is. So manage to finally get those court documents on. Monday, the 23rd of September, and on that day realised that some other people, including the National Party, were now aware of the story. And so I knew that I had to move on the story. So that Monday was spent stacking it up, talking to the Commission, getting as much as I could out of them. Um, They provided a written statement. They wouldn't put anyone up for an interview. Um, Speaking to survivors who were there, who interacted with the man to get their response. Trying to get in touch with the man's partner, the woman on the survivor advisory group. I emailed her and I had quite a lengthy discussion with the man himself and he basically, um, over the course of our conversation, verified what I had been told by the survivor group as well. So at that point knew that we had enough information to go with the story, knew the details of his offending, of his conviction, when and where he interacted with survivors, many who are survivors of um, sex abuse as children when they were in state care, and then had had the reaction from the, the survivors. We have been trying to get our stories heard and changes made for many, many, many years, you know, and it almost feels like it's being sabotaged. And the man himself. What was his reaction? He contacted me. All I had at that stage was the email of his partner, so I had emailed her. Once he received that email, he called me, and this was late on Monday night. Um, I was actually, I, I had worked quite late on the on the story, and I was picking up some burgers on the way home for dinner, and that's when he called me. So it wasn't a, a you know, it, it's it's never a great call to have, but it was, a, it was a, a difficult situation anyway, not being in the office. But mm. he was really upset. Like, I could not overstate how upset he was. He was angry. He was sad. He was scared that his name and his partner's name were going to be put out in the media, in the public sphere. And I, I completely understood that. And, and I said to him on multiple occasions that we were not doing that. That that wasn't that was never the point of the story, you know. Like I was saying, this this man's done his time. If we're going to believe that our society is built on rehabilitation, then we have to back that up with our actions, right? Mm. So he has every right to get on with his life, but the Royal Commission failed in its duty of care to survivors. That is the point of the story the whole way through. And so I, I explained that to him and I was saying to him I felt like that was an important enough story to do, um, to publish that, even though it wasn't going to be a nice experience for him. And he actually, by the end of our conversation, he completely understood that. He said that I disclosed the nature of my convictions as soon as I was asked about it. No one had asked me before then, you know, what what the nature of my convictions were. I was very upfront with, you know, whenever someone asked me, I told three people at the commission. He said... I do now understand that I shouldn't have been there and I understand why it was wrong. Um, He also told me about his background and his childhood and really, that was really sad, unsurprising but really sad, um, what he had gone through. And he said that 
he didn't feel like he needed to be dragged through the media, you know, and, and repunished. He said that he punishes himself every day for what he did. Mm. He said, he, you know, he hates himself. He'll live with that for the rest of his life and that's enough. And I completely agree with him. How much have you published about this man? Not very much. I mean, there there will always be a debate, right? Because legally, we cannot name him. We can never name him or his victim. Um, we have chosen ethically not to name his partner. And then basically anything else we could say. So I explained that he... Um, he raped and, and sexually violated and had unlawful sexual connection with a child in his care when she was between the age of seven and eight and a half. I felt like it was important to point out that it was a child and that that child was in his care because that's what we're dealing with with the Royal Commission, right? Mm. So some people said that was too much detail. Um, I felt like there was an argument to put that level of detail into the story, that that level of detail was further down in the story and there were warnings at the top of the story and help numbers at the bottom because obviously you know you don't you don't take those decisions lightly anything else in that court document and anything else he told me we legally could have published but chose not to go into the details and so his partner is part of the survivor advisory group he was going along to some of those gatherings yeah and this is this has been a difficult part of this story because that's been disputed the whole way through by different parties, including the Royal Commission. Where was he? How much did he interact with members of the group and when? So basically a bit of background on the group. The the Survivor Advisory Group is is the first of its kind in the world. It's pretty massive. So other countries have had similar Royal Commissions, um, the UK and Australia and, and New Zealand looked to them a lot when they were designing the Royal Commission. But this survivor advisory group is is different to what any other country has had. And basically they went out, put out expressions of interest to survivors, to people who were abused in care. And we're talking state care and then also faith-based care. So... They put out those expressions of interest and they got, I think it was something like 50 people who came in and said, hey, I want to be part of this group. And basically this group works alongside the commission the whole way through. They're not staff of the commission, they're not employed by the commission, but they meet and they they talk about kind of best practice, about um, looking after survivors and about really keeping the whole process survivor-centred and understanding what survivors would be thinking about and going through. So this group is an advisory group, but is also made up of people who, who are by definition vulnerable people, right? They're survivors, they've gone through some really horrific stuff in their lives, but they've worked on themselves and they're at a point where they want to be advising, supporting and, you know, advocating for for other survivors and helping them through this journey. Mm. So this this woman um, whose partner is the convicted child sex offender, she is one of the members on that advisory group. So she is a, a survivor herself. When you got the story and you were ready to publish it and you went to the commission, what was its response? The response was, it was written, first of all. I wanted to point out they didn't put someone up for an interview. It was long. And I I don't want to get into kind of a a, a mudslinging game here. I just don't think it's helpful and I don't think that it it serves the wider purpose of the story. But there was a lot of um, discussion around semantics. 
So I was told that this man was at meetings. I spoke to survivors who attended meetings with him there, attended gatherings, interacted with him, you know, spoke to him in the the hallways. One woman had to go to his room and kind of pacify him after a certain incident, and he was eating food with them, um, things like that. But the, the commission's response was he wasn't at any formal meetings. They were in attendance at gatherings outside of meetings, but they were never at any survivor advisory meeting. So there, there was a bit of a, a dance around what is a formal meeting, what is an informal meeting. At the end of the day, my point was he was interacting with these survivors because the Royal Commission had had not followed up and, and found out that the nature of his, his convictions and the survivors themselves said that while they were at meetings with him, and they, they refer to them as meetings, the people that were there on this advisory group, that he was present and he was interacting with them. Moving on from that, there was a lot of comments, I guess, from the Royal Commission about what they had done since. They said that they they decided not to carry out formal police vetting in the first instance when they put out the expressions of interest because they realised that a lot of survivors um, who were abused in state care would have convictions because, you know, mm. they, they've, they've had difficult lives. You know, they've, a lot of them have gone on to offend at some point in their life and they didn't want that vetting to be a barrier to them participating in the group. And and that's understandable. I mean, that, that logic does make sense. Um, but they said that after they sat down, one of the, the staff members who is now managing the survivor advisory group sat down with this man um, on the 22nd of August and asked him the nature of his convictions and he disclosed that they realised that they needed to put a vetting process in place and they said immediately steps were taken to make sure that he would be at no further meetings or gatherings or whatever you want to call them. He wouldn't be further interacting with these survivors. Um, And then their plan, they said, was to then go out and tell the survivors what had happened and start asking for their consent to carry out police vetting on, on all of the survivors. The question is then why between late May when you knew that this man had a serious criminal conviction and late August, you know, over three months, why were no further questions asked? And why were there no processes to to follow up on that and make sure that people were safe? So he had actually gone to the Commission in May and told them that he had convictions. Yeah, in in May, um, when they were setting up the first meeting and the first travel... Um, all of the all of the people who were travelling as part of the survivor su- survivor sorry advisory group and their support people, so which this man was, mm. um, had to tell the commission basically if they had any specific needs. So this this man's partner um, had specific needs around her accommodation and what she needed. This man also told them that one of his specific needs was knowing his accommodation two or three days out from travel so that he could notify police. That's not a normal requirement, right, for someone who has a a historic conviction. It could be a provision or a a requirement of of their parole or an extended supervision order or it, it could point to something else. And at that point, when they knew he had that disclosure requirement for police, they never asked further questions about the nature of his conviction until August. What, because they weren't curious or they weren't, they didn't think it was important? I mean, how have they responded to that? Yeah, yeah it's a really good question, Sharon, and I haven't gotten a response to that yet. Really? They haven't 
given any explanation? There hasn't been a justification as to why there has there was that three month wait. What was the survivors' response when when you went to them with this information? How did they react? People I spoke to already knew. They're a tight-knit group, right? A lot of them have already known each other and the ones that didn't have gone to know each other through this process. So to to a point that news had travelled, the people I spoke to initially already knew about this. They, um, They were devastated. They felt like their safety had been put at risk and... They explicitly said that they felt re-traumatised. One woman, Kath Costa, said that she had no choice when she was a child in state care. She didn't have the choice to keep herself safe, but she does in adulthood, and she always puts her safety first for for her children, for her, her grandchildren. And she said if she had known, she would have never put herself in the same room as that man because that that puts her safety at risk, right? And then there's, as well as physical safety, there's there's all of this, you know, mental and emotional trauma um, that has, you know, it's, it's been re-triggering for people. It's been re-traumatising. And another woman I spoke to, Jane Stevens, said that she found out about this through the media. She was on the motorway driving and she heard on Radio New Zealand the, the story. I'm on my way to Auckland at the moment, uh catching a plane to a survivor advisory group in Christchurch and uh, this is the first I've heard of it. I'm actually feeling physically sick at the moment, to be honest. She hadn't been given a heads up that the story was going to come out. She then didn't receive a call from anyone at the commission asking if she was okay or if she needed support. I am staggered that we were not informed of having somebody who was a paedophile amongst our midst. As you can imagine, that is probably one of the worst possible scenarios for people who've been through abuse. These are people who do not have faith or trust in the state and in institutions, but they've put that aside to be part of this inquiry because they think that it could lead to something better. You know, they've been waiting for this for so long. The response from the minister in charge of this Royal Commission of Inquiry, Tracy Martin, initially it seemed like she was very angry. She was very angry that this happened. She was angry that she found out through the media. It's an independent inquiry, so there's no requirement for them under a no surprises policy or anything like that. But you could tell she was frustrated and that she thought this shouldn't have happened. And she can't compel them or order them, but invite the commissioners to to come to the Beehive and explain. So it is possible that the commissioners have erred on the side of Um, extreme caution, I suppose, about how they treat survivors. And and I guess that's one of the things that we wanted them to do. Uh, But now I need to know whether, you know, with hindsight, what would they have changed? How will they make sure that something like this never happens again? And the reaction from the commission, I don't like the word disappointing because it sounds a bit self-righteous, but it was was a bit disappointing. 6 a.m., on the day that the story went up, I got a call from a staff member at the commission who said that they were disappointed, that they didn't feel like the story accurately represented their statement and what they said. And I felt that it was um, right for me to point out at that time that the, the disappointing thing wasn't the media story, it was what was happened and the fact that the Royal Commission failed in its duty of care. From then, we had a lot of uh, backwards and forwardsing, basically trying to, I guess, 
to a point, discredit or at least downplay the stories that had been reported. Um, and then we heard Judge Coral Shaw, one of the um, one of the commissioners on on RNZ, later in the week, saying basically that if the media had taken the care or the time to find out exactly what happened, that would have been helpful because she felt that the story had been misrepresented. I think the media didn't realise uh, or, or take enough care to find out what it was that the commissioners knew and what they did as soon as they found out about the situation. And uh, if you'd like me to clarify that, I will do that immediately. Mm. Uh, what happened was that um, at late August... Uh, the commissioners were advised that a support person for one of our survivor advisory group members had uh, serious convic- sexual convictions. Immediately, uh, steps were taken to ensure that that person no longer accompanied their partner to the meetings and that person has never been back. We also put in place a process by which we would advise members of the advisory group what had happened because to that date nobody had known that he was a sex offender. Unfortunately, the, the um, matter came out in the media mm. earlier and a whole lot of people were re-traumatised before we were able to get to them to help them through, through the knowledge. I would like to point to a couple of things. Firstly, that you know the, the interaction with the Commission in order to get information has been quite difficult. And secondly, nothing that she said following that um, was inconsistent with any, any timeline that was reported. So one of the survivors said to me, a bit of a butt-covering exercise. You'd mm. hope that the, the focus from then would be less around PR and reputational damage and more about stepping back, taking a look at what's going on within the Commission why this happened, what processes failed or were not in place, and fixing that, and then building that trust firstly from the inside and then with the wider public to give. Is there any threat to the whole Commission's survival itself? Could this derail it altogether? It paints a pretty bad picture, doesn't it? Like Cumulatively, what has been said over and over and over again by the Minister Tracy Martin, by the Commission itself and and by other people, is that this was always going to be difficult. This is the most complicated Royal Commission of Inquiry around the most sensitive issues um, that this country's ever seen. That's repeated so many times it almost starts to sound a little bit defeatist, but from talking to people over the past week, they think that maybe some of the these processes, maybe um, some of what's been going on at the at the commission, has been a bit rushed, and because they they didn't have a framework in place, um, and because you know that this is a first of its kind in New Zealand, they're they're trying to kind of get their bearings, but they're also really worried about you know being seen to be dragging their feet, so they're rushing into things. So, I guess the the comment from a lot of people has been slow down, ask us what we think get a mix of the right people in there and do the job properly. You know, you've got, you've got one chance, do it right. So the Minister has now expressed confidence in the Commission. So what's next, Laura? Yeah, so I don't think that this is going away. We've spoken about those, those wider cultural issues and dysfunction within the Commission. That will keep bubbling away. And in terms of this specific story, um, the survivors are pissed off. They're not going to let this one go. They feel like um, they're having their, you know, their integrity questioned because their their stories that they've put out in the media have been questioned. So they're they're now weighing up their options about what to do next. I mean, they they feel let down. They feel re-traumatized, um, and and they're not going to be shut up. 
And a Commission staff member is currently going through an employment matter in relation to all of this. That's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The details brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell, our associate producer. Producer is Kathaki Masalamani. Kakite Ano.